For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And on this episode, he preached of armed revolt before becoming a man of God. Then he was arrested for murdering a cop. But did he actually do it? We'll talk about the podcast Radical. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Hey, are you all right? <laughs> yeah, why? Well, did it sound like there was a question mark at the you end of that? You sounded exasperated. Like, hello, Rebecca, again? <laughs> Should I try that again? <laughs> no, yeah, go ahead, take that all again. Right. Hello, Rebecca. Thank you. I, I I feel like that was better. I feel more appreciated now. And Whatever. <laughs> and also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of The Final Curtain, Laura Bricker. Hi, Laura. Hey, Rebecca. And, and wait, 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 and owner. In possession of a working stove. Congratulations. Ah. The GE Cafe uh, induction range belongs to you now that actually functions. It's amazing. I cooked an egg on it tonight. Wow. Wow. It's finally. Should have live streamed that shit. (laughs) I I did. Uh. I'm of all things cynical. The author of the City Trilogy of Novels, host of Strange Arrivals, and our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast host, Toby Ball. Hi, Toby. Hey, Rebecca. So, Laura, I learned today where you should move. Oh. If you ever decide to leave Exeter, New Hampshire. Oh, well, okay. I am so curious. I went for a walk this morning with my son, Henry Lavoie, who just returned from a month long trip to Europe where he like continued to move east and like go to all sorts of different places. And his final destination was Istanbul in Turkey. Yeah. Apparently it is the city of cats. (gasps) (gasps) Mm. (laughs) What? Yes. There are cats everywhere, cats in all the public spaces, beautiful, well-fed cats in public parks, like the people who work for the city go to the park to like trim the bushes and stuff and bring giant bags of cat food to feed all the cats. Apparently, like in all the public restaurants and cafes, there are these like beautiful cats just like sitting around. It's not like a place where there's just like sad, decrepit cats everywhere. Are these cats pulling their weight? (laughs) Are they just living off the public teeth? (laughs) Well, he also went to Romania, which apparently is the country of dogs because there's like beautiful... Well-fed, uh, feral dogs that look like Isle of Dogs, like uh, dogs that would live in somebody's house. Dogs, like they went skiing in Romania, and there were like dogs on the ski slopes running around. There were like, you know, they went for a dogs hike. do work. They work <laughs> for a living. And he was like, the dogs looked so well-fed that like we go on a hike, and like five dogs would follow us with a puppy. And I wanted to be like, dude, dogs, whatever you're eating, like you need to slow down because these dogs were like <laughs> extremely like. <laughs> porky and then well-fed looking. But anyway, apparently Istanbul, very cosmopolitan, very cool place to visit, very, very beautiful and chock full of cats. And I was like, so Kevin would hate it, in other words, but Lara Bricker, apparently Istanbul, place you need to go. Those cats are just abusing the social safety net. (laughs) They're probably doing a pretty good job on like the vermin. Yeah. 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 They are carnivores. Yeah. 
But those dogs all have jobs and everything. <laughs> no, the Romanian dogs. The Romanian dogs. Are any Romanian cats? No. We know why? Dogs. <laughs> well, this is interesting. The other place there's a lot of cats like that is Old San Juan. Uh-huh. Like, I enjoyed it there. My son was like, stop talking to all the cats. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there, there was like cats. And I was like, I love all these cats. And he's like, mom, you don't know these cats. Yeah. Like, yeah. You don't know them. these cats. Yeah. And I'm like, not yet, clearly. But yeah. now I do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Henry. I've like, never met somebody who's like more sort of place based than Laura. Yeah. Mm. What, what do you like mean? It's hard to, well, it's just like I just associate Exeter with you and you with Exeter. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to imagine you. Yeah. In Istanbul with the cats. somewhere else. You are yeah. the queen of Exeter, New Hampshire. If anyone dares try to claim a social life at Exeter, New Hampshire that encroaches upon yours. They shall be smited, Laura Bricker. Mm, smitten. <laughs> S- they'll be smite, smitten. Smite, smitten, smitten. Smote. They no, will be smote. I, it's a beautiful town. It's I hard love to conjugate Exeter. smite, isn't it? It's not a <laughs> common word. So, yeah. So, um, cool. Well, I'm going to add that now that I have a functional passport that is valid and legal, I might add Istanbul to my list. Apparently, it's wonderful and beautiful, as apparently is Romania, where Henry is like now trying to sell me hard on going. So, yeah. But how can you leave your new convection stove behind? (laughs) I can't because I'm going to be paying for it for the next year. So I will be here in Exeter with my new stove. I'm starting a series of Sunday suppers on my new stove so that I can keep testing it out because I have an entire freezer full of a giant beef tenderloin that is now in three different roasts from Christmas when I couldn't cook it. Ah, so. mm. Now that you can make an egg. I'm making some beef wellington if y'all want to come over. All right. Strangely, the vault was translated into Romanian. Really? Oh. oh, are you big in Romania? I don't know. Actually, the biggest ever media placement the vaults ever got was on the front page of the entertainment section of some Romanian newspaper. Yeah. Mm. Don't know if it was a big newspaper or a small newspaper, Google Translate was kind of able to give me a sense of what it was, what the review was about. But uh, yeah. Did they interview you or did they just did a review? No, they sure didn't. They They sure sure didn't. Yeah. Yeah. They they just wrote a a review and had a big picture of the Romanian cover. Yeah. Henry Uh, Henry described the Romanian language as sounding like Eastern European Spanish. He said it was a very interesting language to listen to. It was very, very different sounding than all the Baltic languages they heard like in Serbia and so forth when they were going through there. He said it was very, very interesting. Yeah. They were in Serbia for Orthodox Christmas. And they were looking for a place to go. And he said Serbia was super interesting. It was full of like a bunch of like uh, draft dodging Russians. Mm. Ne'er do well draft dodging Russians. (laughs) 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 And uh, and who who were all trying to get into the same like private clubs in Serbia on Orthodox Christmas where you had like lines around the block. I don't know. It sounds like a very interesting trip that my son went on. Anyway, where he was surrounded by dogs and cats the entire time. (laughs) Dogs, cats and Russian conscripts. Yeah. (laughs) And vampires. Yeah, Romania has big vampire territory. Yes, he did go to that Vlad castle, which inside is a museum that looks like it was decorated by someone who works at a Halloween pop-up store at the Manchester Mall. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) Got to give them what they want. That's right. That's right. Uh, So, Kevin... Yeah. This is Time obviously- for the business section. Right <laughs> <laughs> now on Patreon, you can get the after show. <laughs> this is obviously Monday's podcast. It, it, is it still Monday? Yes. Okay, yes. We've just gotten back from our Vegas trip. We're flying home today. And we've had such a good time. Uh, what is coming up on Thursday's show? On Thursday, we're going to be talking about the podcast from the folks at Up and Vanish. It's called The Vanishing Point. Right, right. So what are we talking about on this show? 
well, why don't you read the rest of the script and then we'll find out. <laughs> Should we go ahead and drop that first clip and get uh, into we it? we do. Let's drop the first clip. All right, let's do that. Let's get into it and drop that first clip right now. Leading off. And then after that, the gunshots continued and continued and continued and continued. It was like almost like an overkill, like it was a war zone out there. Who would shoot that many? T- no, no one, I mean, no one would do that. In 2000, a deputy was killed and another wounded in Atlanta's West End while trying to serve an arrest warrant. Authorities said the gunman was Jamil Abdullah El-Amin, the leader of the local mosque and caretaker of the predominantly Muslim neighborhood. How much of what he was doing in the West End did you see as a continuation of who he had been before or was it a departure? Yeah, no, he, he made a complete change. He made a complete change. In the years before becoming Imam Jamil, he'd been known as H. Rap Brown, a leader in the 1960s Black Power movement accused by the FBI of inciting violence. West End residents did not think their spiritual leader was behind the fatal shooting and wondered if his arrest was motivated less by the contradictory evidence and more by his past as an outspoken activist. To say that this gun is the gun who fired this bullet is very, very difficult. There were questions about whether this was a valid conclusion from a scientific point of view. From Campside Media, Tenderfoot TV and iHeart Media comes Radical. Host Mosey Secret investigates the night of the shooting and attempts to find out who Imam Jamil really is. Is he truly a man of God? Is he a dangerous extremist? Or is the answer somewhere in the middle? Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Radical. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. An additional note. Our own Toby Ball says he has worked with several of the producers on the Radical team, but that has not influenced his review. Toby, would you like to add anything to this disclaimer? No, other than I had listened to almost the entire thing, and I was actually on a Zoom call with a couple of the people who worked on it. And I was like, oh, hey, do you guys know that Radical that iHeart put out with a bunch of other people? They're like, oh, yeah, we worked on it. I was like, oh. So anyway, I'd already listened to most of it, made up my mind. I think if you've listened to much of this and know my taste, you'll see that this hasn't really influenced my opinion. So so what you're saying is you never actually listen to the credits of any of the episodes of the podcast. <laughs> I don't, I've got no time for that. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get it right into it and start with you, Toby. So Imam Jamil uh, actually was known as H. Rap Brown beforehand. Can you talk about his history as H. Rap Brown and the part he played as a dissident, as a protester before he became Imam Jamil? Right. So, you know, he grew up in the Jim Crow South And, you know, he became an activist and actually took over the SNCC SNCC from Stokely Carmichael. He was on the militant end of the civil rights movement. Uh, He's known for after sort of a white supremacist rally on Maryland's eastern shore, came a few days later and gave this very sort of hell-raising, provocative speech in which he said violence is as American as cherry pie, which we can talk about later, which I think is a kind of interesting thing to say. But he was one of the people who felt that black Americans weren't necessarily going to achieve the rights that they deserve without violence. And that's sort of what he became associated with. And as I'm sure we'll talk about, that kind of had him labeled by especially the federal government 
as somebody they, you know, they wanted to at minimum keep a close eye on and uh, preferably have some control over probably by having him in prison or, you know, some other people who serve his spouse's same views ended up dead. So that's my thumbnail on H. Rat Brown. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting. The podcast does, um, you know, Mosey Secret does make a point to sort of walk us through you know, the history of the black power movement and the difference between the nation of Islam and Islam. They are two different things and how, you know, people become converted by one or the other, sometimes both, very often in prison. And sometimes people are a member of the nation of Islam and then they move over to the religion of Islam, as Malcolm X did, by the way, for instance. So, Kevin, this is really a very interesting biographical profile in addition to being a true crime story. Can you sort of talk about that? Because it really does weave you through this long historical story in addition to sort of unraveling this crime thread. Yeah, I think it works at both levels, like you said. Not just sort of a look at the shooting around Imam Jamil, but also the idea of like who H. Rap Brown was. So, um, you know, the idea of like looking into was Imam Jamil the shooter, proving that, disproving that. I feel like for the host, that would be very daunting and then, you know, a little quixotic. And so I don't know like whether or not trying to do that would make a satisfying podcast from beginning to end. We did get some exculpatory evidence, um, you know, like oh, the color of the guy's eyes was off and, you know, questions. Someone about, else confessed to the shooting, for instance. Uh, there's that a guy who confessed to the shooting and confessed to a bunch of other stuff. There was interesting things there. that didn't necessarily flip me. And in the end, it didn't flip mostly secret. But I thought as far as, you know, a subject to look at. He's a fascinating historical figure. And I was really interested in sort of how does the arc of a man's life go from, you know, being an honorary Black Panther and being on the FBI most wanted list to being this community slash religious leader activist within this this insular community in Atlanta and then now in prison. So I thought that the that arc was very interesting. Right. So, Laura, it's not like wishful thinking on some level to investigate whether or not Imam Jamil did or didn't do the shooting, because there are a lot of people who think he didn't. And there is some stuff that points to even if he did do it, maybe the investigation against him was dirty. It is possible that the FBI planted a gun while arresting him And he could have been the shooter. It is possible that the cop may have given tainted, you know, ID and he could have been the shooter. But certainly it's reasonable for someone who really wants to believe he didn't do it. There's stuff there. So I don't think that going into this, Mosey's Secret, like, was chasing something that was an impossible thing to believe that he might not have been the shooter. I mean, it is a historical story and a true crime story in that way, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, God, all you have to do is go Google this. And there is so much information out there on the internet from people who are advocating for his release. And as soon as I heard about this confession of Otis Jackson, I was like, oh. So it's like two alpha males. Neither one of us are, are, are backing down. And before I knew it, it just escalated. I knew I had a gun on me. I'm on house arrest. I got, so this is going to send me right back to prison. It just wasn't happening. And I did what I felt that I had to do at the time. I pulled out my gun and fired. And his story sounds pretty credible and why he was freaked out and and how it happened and why he ran. And then you hear, well, actually, we checked this out and doesn't really add up. 
but there are inconsistencies. You know, the surviving deputy says the suspect had been shot. Imam Jamil had not been shot. There was a pretty clear discrepancy about the color of the eyes. The guns linked to the shooting did not have Imam Jamil's fingerprints on them. So if you're like a defense attorney, or if you're looking at this from a different perspective, there is definitely information here to suggest that maybe this isn't black and white. Maybe this isn't cut and dry. Maybe there is more to this. But like you said, Rebecca, there's also this super complicated and just extremely lengthy backstory of the first part of Imam Jamil's life, which leads him to be very well known. And when this investigation begins, there's so many preconceived ideas about who he is and what he does and who he controls and how he controls it, that I feel like that really colors how his case is investigated. So I think that in itself is super fascinating to look at how this investigation, whether or not there was things that were done incorrectly or not, just how this investigation was perceived by those in charge because of that background, because of what they knew going into this. And and how did that influence the way that they conducted their investigation? Yeah. So I will say, I mean, I do give Mosi Secret all the credit in the world for trying to corroborate every detail of that other confession, right? Mm -hmm. That being said, a lot of people who have given confessions in other cases do recant their confessions and then state their confessions again and recant them and state them again because of pressure from law enforcement. We hear, by the way, we heard this in uh, Bone Valley again and again and again that the guy who confessed to the killing recanted and then and then restated and recanted and restated. We hear that again and again and again. And also, he talks about people not being able to corroborate, you know, cooperating with him. You know, that, you know, helping him out, taking the gun, whatever. And, you know, he does acknowledge, like, who would say that they did those things? So it's almost like this guy gave uncorroboratable details. So it it is like chasing ghosts, trying to corroborate the details of this guy's thing. But the, the confession that he gave to me actually made a great deal of sense. Like the story that he told was a very sort of practical timeline driven story and sort of the way that he sort of unraveled it made sense. I'm not saying his confession is true. I'm just saying if his confession isn't true, he came up with a really solid story for why he did the shooting, how he did the shooting, how it happened, the aftermath. And he provided a tremendous number of details there that he's still sort of sticking with, which is very, very interesting to me. And I don't think they're necessarily corroboratable details. But I honestly give these journalists all the credit in the world for trying to chase him down. You know, speaking of credit, we'll take a credit card at patreon.com oh my gosh. slash partners in crime media. What a smooth transition, Kevin. And it doesn't matter what part of the world you're from. Because We're in the they business section, do, by the way. Yes. They do the uh, currency transfer. So if you want to pay in pounds, you want to pay in euro, yes. Canadian dollars, whatever they pay with in Australia. Okay, Kevin, pause for a second. What? Mosey Secret, if you're listening to this podcast, you've never heard it before. We do this thing called the business section in the middle of our show where we talk about to apologize our listeners for who and I how am. they can support us and our work. And Kevin does this ham-fisted transition into it. And that's what you just heard in the middle of this review. We are going to go back to reviewing your show in just a minute. Okay, Kevin, continue. Okay, so if you join <laughs> us at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, you'll get Nearly 500 exclusive podcasts. They include things like the Crime Writers on After Show. This week, guys, got some true crime updates. There is a uh, 
a development in a case where the uh, the Innocence Project the is LA getting involved. The LA Innocence Project, yes. And a suspicious figure in a very infamous murder passes away. What does that mean to the case? We're going to be talking about Scott Peterson and Ian Bailey. Hmm, dump, dump, dump. Yeah, we got other great podcasts. We got Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club. All the book clubbers right now are uh, reading up on the next book. It's called The Angel Makers. And Toby, it looks like next week you're going to have your live recording uh, where folks who are supporting you at the deep dive level, they can watch you put it together. They can take part by putting comments in the chat or even jump on the screen if they want to. Who are your regular guests that are going to be discussing the book with you? Regular guests are Sarah Carradine from Crime Scene. Sarah Kalen is a private investigator and is also has the currently coming out podcast about why we can't talk about Amanda's mom. And finally, uh, University of Pittsburgh professor Bridget Keown. Nice. Mm. When you have Sarah on, ask her, Sarah Carradine, ask her what it is they pay with in, uh, in Australia. Don't they Australian just pay dollars? In dollars? I think it's yeah. Australian dollars. I, I guess we'll take those too. I mean, just put it on a credit card. We'll figure hey it out. Hey, now. She supports us at Patreon. You should too. She was on an episode of OPP, my, my show for Grab Bag Collab. It's other people's Ooh. problems. That's right. Is that on our Patreon? I think I'm going to be putting an episode of OPP on our Patreon. I think I'll be putting the episode in which you and Toby appear oh on our Patreon. It was a Donnie When it comes out. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. good. All sorts of other great stuff. Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast and our Married with Podcast podcast where Rebecca and I dispense life advice, relationship advice, parenting advice, whatever thing that people think that we could give them help with. And we are, you know, wrong most of the time, I think, right? No. No? People always say we're right. No, oh, I don't know about that. We get so many props. People are like, oh my God, Rebecca, you were spot on. Kevin, you were spot on. We get that all the time. Yeah. People saying like, I was going to join the Navy, but then you talked me out of it, Hell Kevin. yeah. Yeah. What was I thinking at age 66? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go to law school, and then I realized I'm dumb. That's right. Yeah, you're just not smart enough to so get that done. <laughs> I, realize I don't really care about the law. <laughs> Kevin. I just like to build people. <laughs> I'm a puzzle maker. Yeah, a puzzle, <laughs> oh, puzzle solver. <laughs> All right, Kevin. Um, are we done with the business section? Yeah, I think that's a good place to pull the plug <laughs> on this. Go ahead and fade the music out right now. Fade the music out. So we can go back to our smart discussion. All right, I'm going to fade the music out right now. All right, so Toby, the setting of this podcast, the West End in Atlanta. What do you think about this setting? What is interesting about it to you? Uh, well, you know, I think what's interesting is just the power that Imam Jamil exerts over this small neighborhood, I guess, in Atlanta, where the surrounding areas are kind of riven by by drugs and violence and, and you know, the things that you associate with poverty. And, and he basically has this area kind of locked down. He's got people who sort of enforce it. And they he goes and takes a look at the fact that all these drug dealers who were basically killed around this area and that that's it's likely because of this one guy who killed most of them, perhaps on Imam Jamil's orders or perhaps not. It's, you know, there's no real conclusion drawn there. Very likely he knew about it is sort of like. Yeah, I mean, he at least knew about it because he seems like he kind of runs the area. So it's an interesting situation. And I, I, when 
Laura or Kevin mentioned the Black Panthers before, you know, I think it's kind of a similar sort of, we're going to keep our area pretty regimented. We'll provide services and things like that. We'll, we'll be, we'll be self-reliant and we're going to keep the scourges that are normally associated with, you know, inner city poverty and stuff at bay, at least in this little area. He kind of set up this little society in a neighborhood and kept it quite different from the places that sort of abutted it. Yeah, I think there are parallels between this West End neighborhood and like certain neighborhoods in Brooklyn where uh, Orthodox Jews also have sort of this self-actualized community within a community. And, you know, they're also keeping it tight. And they have a desire for a more insular community that kind of patrols its own. So in this way, it makes you kind of wonder is, uh, I should say, was Imam Jamil a religious leader or more of a conventional political leader in this community? One of the things that kind of interested me, too, is that we learn about these security patrols, you know, they were like the muscle that like kept the drug dealers out. But then, of course, then you get shady characters who get involved in that. And it's hard to control all of that when you have sort of competing interests. Right. It kind of reminds me of, you know, aspects that, you know, mirror the way organized crime sort of takes ownership of a neighborhood. And it's like, you don't come and mess here because we're taking care of it. You know, one way to look at it is like this is a community that like took care of its own and that they relied on one another and drug dealers did not want to come in. But it's also sort of part of the reason was that it, it was not just that they were uh, beautiful and holy and that they didn't want to mess up what was the wonderful thing that was going on, that there might also have been some iron fist inside that velvet glove. Yeah. A little bit of echoes of Stringer Bell, kind of what I was listening, what I was hearing yeah. in there. So, yeah, because um, Omar, like, when uh, you know, folks are uh, drug dealers are vanishing, right? Yeah, yeah. There's also just sort of like an economic like aspect to this too. I mean, it wasn't lost on me that Imam Jamil also owned a store. Yeah, that there was also like a business community sort of inside this religious community as well. So, Laura, can you talk a little bit about the style of the podcast because it is kind of hypnotic. In many ways, the music is hypnotic. Mosi Secret's narration is a little bit hypnotic. And there are very, very long stretches of narration in this podcast that I think if you're not interested in the topic, I think you're likely to maybe like sort of get drawn <laughs> into the hypnotism of it, right? Oh, that's exactly what happened to me. So I was listening to this. Most of this I listened to all last weekend. I was painting my living room. I was patenting my technique called slow painting, where I put on a podcast or an audiobook and then I slowly paint with a little brush around my whole room. How hypnotic. You should try a little larger brush. <laughs> it will go faster. She's very twee, Kevin. She's doing it in a new way. Okay. I it's it's kind of it's good for Laura Burker to slow down sometimes. Like sometimes I need to slow down. But I was listening to this and I was gonna say that's like sort of my only critique of this podcast is that we do have this narrator whose voice is like so soothing. And a lot of it is him telling us the story of what happened of a mom Jamil's life and of the background. And they have this like nice music in the background as he's talking. But as a deadline approached to finish reporting and to put this story out into the world, I was starting to have a good sense of things. Of a mom Jamil as someone who could have very well shot those deputies and of a West End community that was far from peaceful. And sometimes I'd be painting and I'd be like, oh shit, what just happened for the last 10 minutes? Because I kind of needed to break it up in a way because it was hard to differentiate some of the story because the soundscape to me was just 
sort of level throughout a lot of this. So I would really have to be like, okay, don't get hypnotized by painting. Listen to the story because it was, it, it works, but it's also, that would be my one critique of this is that it's just sometimes a little bit too level in terms of knowing what to listen to and what not to listen to. It was more like an audiobook than a podcast in some regard to me. Well, for me, the episodes were long and there were many, many holy shit moments buried in some of these very long episodes. And that's that's my only critique of the podcast because there are moments in some of these episodes where they talk about, for instance, FBI files and they talk about things that they discover in Discovery looking at these FBI files. And in a podcast that's produced with slightly shorter episodes or punchier episodes or a different kind of soundscape, there's some sort of space around some of these holy shit moments or things like something that's discovered inside of a file where that might be the end of an episode or that might be the end of a chapter of an episode. And it's like they're sort of buried like 25 minutes in. And then there's so much more story after that, that I'm like, wait, did I hear that? Right. Like that. They're all, I mean, Toby, you're nodding. I mean, there's just a very information dense podcast because there's a lot of information. Like, let's be real. FBI is shady as fuck and they have a lot of receipts about it in this show and there's just a lot of listing of those receipts that happens like a lot in this podcast so can you talk about that a little bit Toby yeah well I think that's great for me because I'm super interested in all this stuff and uh, you know they talk about COINTELPRO you know I, th I think one thing that kind of struck me as I was listening to it is you know this is one of those places where people can have conspiracy theories and it makes sense because there really is a documented conspiracy yes. against black leaders, especially in the in the 60s and 70s. But, you know, that's where he cut his teeth and then continuing on through the 90s. There were plants. There were plants in the yeah. mosque. I mean, like, that's, yeah. what, that's what COINTELPRO was, is, is, you know, you're trying you're trying to infiltrate and destabilize these organizations. So, yeah, I, I mean, I thought there was just a lot of really sort of smart, interesting stuff. And I, and, I, and I agree that, you know, if you're not focused, some of it can get lost again, because they don't beat you over the head with this stuff. It's like this stuff happened. And if you're not paying attention and pick up on it, it, it could definitely pass you by. You know, I just thought some of the writing was, was really good, not necessarily in terms of the syntax. And, and there was nothing wrong with it. But like, he does make this comment at one point about this county in Georgia, I guess where he, he was in prison and talking about how in the 1800s, the economy was only made possible because of slavery and that now the economy is really dominated by the uh, penitentiary that's there. And it just tracks exactly with like the new Jim Crow and how it's like this area's economy has basically been based around controlling black people, right? And again, he doesn't hit you over the head with it. But if you're listening, it's like, oh, okay. Like he's making this really interesting point. So I, I don't know if that's if that's a good or a bad thing. I, I would just say that there's a lot of podcasts that have this kind of cadence where you can kind of not pay attention to some stuff and you don't feel like you're really missing out on on things. But I think with this one, if, if you don't, you can just really miss stuff because I, I feel like it was pretty chock full of sort of insights and, and interesting pieces of information pretty constantly. 
Yeah. Kevin, can you talk about the FBI stuff? Because the FBI stuff is fucking interesting. Yeah, we hear about this uh, after the anecdote with the, the riot after H.R.A.P. Brown left town. I mean, this was kind of going on in the shadow of the Voting Rights Act and all this civil rights legislation that LBJ championed. And yet we get down to incidents where there are riots and other kinds of unrest. LBJ is among the first to sort of like call out people in the black liberation movement. And it's because white people were scared. But the idea that Hoover's like, yeah, this is this, you know, he's got to be neutralized. Uh, It certainly says a lot about what the FBI was thinking about this movement at the time and certainly not keeping uh, the same kind of watch on uh, right wing extremists and, you know, the Klan and whatnot. And there are certainly some echoes of that, like in today's law enforcement Certainly the way that some parts of white America respond to Black Lives Matter, um, you know, they're scared. And so that's why there's a backlash. And, you know, I guess a backlash even before there was a backlash. But, yeah, you know what I mean? There are sort of these um, parallels. I forget who it was. It wasn't Mark Twain. Everyone likes to say it was Mark Twain. But, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Mm. And so... We have some of the similar things still going on. Yeah. Well, I will say the FBI continues to do this kind of thing with communities of color and with some what it perceives as terroristic threats in the United States with other kinds of communities. In fact, Mm -hmm. Campside put out a trailer this week of a show that actually uh, my son worked on, my son Henry Lavoie worked on, called The Michigan Plot. It's a new season of Chameleon. And the trailer, you can listen to it right now, it's about... The guys who we all saw in the news and the news story was a group of guys plotting to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. And the podcast is about whether or not it was actually an FBI agent who infiltrated this group and actually created the plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. So I'm really looking forward to that one. But like the FBI, it's like this is what mm-hmm. they do. We've 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 actually done other media about this too it's it's super interesting um laura one turn the podcast takes that i really want to talk about is imam jamil is currently in the supermax prison in colorado we've heard about this place before it houses some uh you know, quote unquote, Islamic terrorists post 9-11. It also houses some very, very well-known American defendants and El Chapo. Um, What do you think about the Supermax, this idea that like putting people in this incredibly remote place, keeping them in solitary confinement all of the time, it is torture. Every human rights group in the world believes that it is the Catholic Church believes that it is. Human Rights Watch believes that it is. Uh, and yet it has not really run the test of the legal system in the United States. There is not a court that will assert that we are, in fact, torturing people by putting them in this place. Yeah, this was fucking horrible. And um, I was glad that they had the perspective of the attorney who like started off doing like one case and like basically this is like all she does now is advocate on behalf of people who are incarcerated there. And and hearing about when he was taken there and like even like transporting people to this prison just sounds super fucking scary. The way they're like taking them there, like secrecy and like, we're not telling you. So just last year, um, there was a congressperson from Colorado who was really concerned and was trying to get more staffing there. And I mean, it's something that has been, obviously, like you said, it's been in the news, but I guess what's troubling about it is that we know so much now about, you know, the dangers of solitary confinement. We know so much now about like mental health and also 
best practices. And you hear about someplace like this that's still operating under sort of an old model and maybe is being challenged, but is still being allowed to house people and treat people the way that they are. And I think actually Imam Jamil has since been transferred because he had some sort of like an eye situation or something that was going on. So I think he's in Arizona now. But I thought that was, again, very telling in the overall context, like the bigger picture of this story, that they felt it necessary to transfer him to a supermax prison. Again, based on sort of these perceptions of who he was and what he was doing. And one of the things I did want to say, like I thought was really interesting, you know, talking about him organizing people and then just sort of the influence he's having over people, that several times they mentioned about how he would say, like, what can I do for you today? Is there anything I can do for you today? Even when he was incarcerated, he was saying that to people. And I thought that was such a telling detail about like who he was. But in the context of who he was, that he's somebody that is very good at making people feel seen by asking them that sort of question, even when he himself is in sort of dire straits and in jail, in prison or whatever. So I, I thought that was a really interesting, just like one little thing that he did like, I, I, it was just like one of those things you're like, okay, now I sort of understand a lot about who this guy is. Yeah. One final question, Toby, spoiler alert to listeners who may want to just skip the review right now and not miss the most spoilery part of all. But our journalist here, Mosi Secret, does make an assertion at the end of the podcast that he believes that Imam Jamil actually did shoot these cops. I believe that's how Imam Jamil thought he was going to go out, defending himself and his community in a blaze of martyrdom that he'd rather die than go back to prison. That he'd given this messed up world everything he had. I believe Imam Jamil shot those deputies. But by some miracle, he survived. What do you think about his assertion there at the end and sort of the way that he unspools that? I'm just curious to know your thoughts. Yeah, well, I, you know, the temptation must be pretty strong to assert that he didn't do it because that is sort of a the blueprint for these kinds of things. And again, B, like we've talked about earlier, you know, there's every reason in the world to think that law enforcement had its finger on the scale while it was doing this investigation. I mean, I think there's no question that they were happy that they could pin this on him. Uh, and it, as Mosey says, he decides that he most likely is guilty and that's fine that doesn't mean that the way he was put away or the the sort of um, motivations behind the people who did it are necessarily pure. So, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of admire this, the idea that you go through this whole journey and get all this information, a lot of which, like, I don't even know if it makes Imam Jamil seem more sympathetic as much as it makes his quote unquote enemies seem much less sympathetic than you have going in. So. Again, I think the easy thing would have been like, there's so many questions. I really wonder. But in fact, like he comes to the opposite conclusion, which is like, yeah, he probably did it. And all this other stuff is interesting and important and valid, but does not necessarily relate to who actually uh, was involved in that shootout. So anyway, that was one of those things where at the end he says, it's like, oh, I was not expecting that. So I think kudos for being willing to, to take that stand on this. 
Okay, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out the podcast Radical, produced by Campside Media and in partnership, the distribution with Tenderfoot and iHeartMedia. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Radical? Yeah, so I'm going thumbs up. And I'm going to say I'm going thumbs up because this is just an extremely well-reported, well-researched, well-thought-out, really interesting historical story with historical context and also it's really two stories. There's a story of our main character's role in the Black Power civil rights era, and there's the story of the more recent criminal case that he is involved with. Honestly, both could have stood on their own, I think, but they tie together in this. And, you know, he's a person who's unique. He's somebody that a lot of people praise, a lot of people fear. Really interesting story. I think it's more of a Toby Ball sort of podcast than a Laura Bricker kind of podcast. And I don't know if I would have spent as long listening. The episodes are super long. Had I not been slow painting my living room, I probably wouldn't have been listening to it. Oh, of course, we're listening to it for this podcast. But as I was listening to it, I was like, Toby's going to love this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So that's my thumbs up review of this and, and why I think what I do about it. Toby Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Radical, since this might be a Toby Ball kind of podcast. It's certainly more a Toby Ball than a Laura Bricker type of podcast. <laughs> um, it certainly is. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think this is really good. Um, I don't know. I just think it's really well done. I think the writing's smart. Um, we didn't talk about this much in the main review, but a lot of it's about violence, you know, political violence going in both directions, uh, violence against the establishment, the establishment's violence against people who oppose it to some degree. And in that way, this story, the the story of a trap Brown who becomes Imam Jamil, you know, I think it encapsulates a lot of that stuff. So yeah, like I, you know, it's a lot different than like stuff that Leon Nafok does, but I think it's in sort of the same general realm of that is like using interesting history to tease out thematic things uh, that you think you can think about as they apply to today. So yeah, I'm into, I'm an enthusiastic thumbs up. I, I I really like this. Kevin Flynn, thumbs up or thumbs down for radical. I'm a mild thumbs up. I don't think I enjoyed it as much as uh, you guys did, but it's an excellent podcast. Nonetheless, Mosi is a uh, top-notch, for-real, bona fide journalist and not just a dilettante who says, I'm going to slide into this neighborhood and see if I can't solve me a murder. Uh, He does some really great work. In the end, I'm sort of like wondering, where did I go? Where did I travel from narratively? I thought, though, that the, you know, sort of the profile of H. Rap Brown and also his life as the mom of this um this mosque in this little tiny insular area outside of Atlanta, I thought it was a really interesting life story. And uh, I did like, I would just say, the last episode the best. I thought it was the one that became probably more personal one for uh, for Mosi. I think that I would have liked maybe a little more of him throughout because he's also an interesting character. But overall, it's good. Um, so I'm a mild thumbs up. I'm a thumbs up too. I think the editing of this podcast got very strong toward the end of the podcast. That's really where I heard a really strong editing hand. Um, And because I think that some of the really, really strongest material about what happened in this case kind of happens when we hear kind of an unraveling of the story and sort of a, a second look at what's going on in this community. And I really, really loved that. And that's I got super drawn into the podcast on the back half of it. 
The historical stuff is great. It's just a little bit lengthy for me. And then when we kind of get into a lot of the oh shit moments, a lot of them are buried in a lot of long historical passages. And in the back half of the podcast, there's just so much great stuff that sang for me in a way that I super enjoyed and that really, really drew me in. So yeah, I'm a thumbs up for this podcast. It's a really, really good podcast. Is it like one where you're going to be like, singing and dancing during it? No, it's a serious show. I mean, just don't get me wrong. It's a very, very serious show, but it's a very, very strong show. So I can't do anything but give Radical a good thumbs up. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of the week. Crime of the week. A British wildlife park has a big fucking problem on its hands. In 2020, the Lincolnshire Wildlife Park inherited five African gray parrots who could not stop swearing. And last week, they took in three more cuss-happy birds. Officials say these aren't cute little swear words that make you titter. It's super offensive profanity, what park executives call proper expletives. There are signs warning visitors about the bird's language, but officials say now it's mostly people yelling swears at the parrots and not the other way around. They're trying to retrain the birds. The plan is to tame the foul-mouthed fowls by integrating them with a larger flock of 92 parrots in hopes they'll pick up a more G-rated vocabulary. But they do acknowledge the risk. It could backfire and the entire flock could learn to swear a blue streak instead. Then there'll be nothing left to say except, oh shit, panel, these- They ever put a kid in kindergarten, the one that knew the F word, (laughs) and waited to see what happened? They ever, like- Observed like a first grade class when some kid knows a swear word. <laughs> Wrong. Wildlife. The other kids do not mellow him out. That's not what happens. <laughs> these birds need a more family friendly way to express themselves. Give these potty mouth parrots something else to say. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Well, I have two things. Uh, you know what Piper Green says? She says, son of a monkey. Yes. Mm. But I would like these parrots to say, Laura Bricker has a new stove. Laura Bricker has a new stove. Yes. Laura Bricker has a new stove. You want to tell the whole fucking world, don't you, Laura Bricker? <laughs> Laura Bricker has a new stove. You do. <laughs> Tony Ball, what do you think a more family-friendly way for these birds to express themselves should be? I realize that this is probably somewhat self-serving for all of us, but if they were screaming thumbs sideways at everybody who walked by, I would be like, mm. <laughs> Yeah. What do you think, Kevin? All right. Rock, knock, knock. Who's there? Eat shit, Rebecca. <laughs> Eat shit, who? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say this. Language is arbitrary. What we decide is a bad word is fucking arbitrary. I think this is funny. And I think these birds show up. Oh, shut the fuck up. Whatever they want. Let and the what birds say what they want. And what I learned when my kids were little and they learned bad words was if you don't react, eventually they calm the fuck down. Right? Like when they're 35? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. How long do these birds live? <laughs> like 80 Pretty years fucking old. Long. They do. There's a guy in my neighborhood who cornered me out front one day and he was like giving me this like, he had this whole spiel prepared about how dogs don't, dogs, man, best friend, don't live forever, but parrots and birds. And like some friend of his had to put it in his will. Right. Yeah. All right, Lara Bricker. No, thank you. If Fuck you, you, parrot. If you want folks to reach out to you with their, perhaps their videos of their real potty mouth parrots that you can share to be a future pet of the week, how can they find you online? They can find me at Lara Bricker. And you can send me your induction stove tips, too. Toby Ball, if you want folks to reach out to you, how can they find you online? At Toby Ball NH. Okay, what about you? I'm a Kevin P. Flynn. You can follow. It's P for parrot. <laughs> you can follow. And penis. <laughs> oh, <Jesus> <laughs> 
<laughs> Penises are so stupid. We talked about that on an upcoming episode of Other People's Problems. If you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram or anywhere, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. Follow the show everywhere at Crime Writers On, including on YouTube. And I encourage you to join our incredible community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. No one ever had a smart penis. Just find us on Facebook. There's a directions on how to join the group. We'll let you in if you're not a jerk. Get episodes early and ad-free at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll also get the Crime Writers On After Show, Married With Podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker's Podcast, and Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcasts. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our editor is the terrific Livy Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin P. Flynn. This show was recorded in the Treehouse Yoga Studio above the Mockingbird Cafe in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi Studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where our favorite birds are the bearded tit, the blue-footed booby, and the dick sizzle. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. And you will fucking send a guy out there with a (laughs) semi-automatic rifle to mow down anybody who tries to stand on a corner and sell drugs in your town. That's right. You're the Imam Jamil of Exeter, New Hampshire. Partners in Crime Media.